probably notice that the sermon title this morning is When Push Comes to Shove. The scripture basis is Matthew 26, verses 1 through 35, if you care to follow along. I'll start reading at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world... What she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought the opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, you will not drink again of this fruit of the vine. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day, When I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, 
Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So the question that I'm really posing this morning is, uh, what do you do or what's your tendency when push comes to shove? And when I say push come to shove, I don't mean some typical daily experience. I mean when something terrifying confronts you, how do you react? There are those who say that there's really two ways that people react, fight or flight. And we have to kind of ask ourselves that question. Does it have to do with personality, how we respond? Does it have to do with the way we were raised? Does it have to do with faith? Does it have to do with gender? Well, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4, gives us a picture of what God considers a beautiful woman to be. This is what Peter says. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or on the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be hidden in uh, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very pre- precious. Now, I would say, in all honesty, my mother is exactly that woman, a quiet and gentle spirit. She's 89 years old, and she's still as beautiful, maybe more beautiful than she ever was. Now, on the other hand, my father, I would have to probably describe him more as a cross between Joshua and Paul, a man's man by anyone's standards, master sergeant who saw action in Korea, The kind of a guy who is not bashful at all about coming up to you, putting his nose right here, looking in your eyes, and telling you what he thinks. They're both very different. And I've often thought that it's actually a good thing to have been raised by them because I can have a little bit of both. And uh, I'll tell you the truth, I'd rather be like my mother. (laughs) But both of them have strong faith. Both of them have strong Christian values. Both of them were raised to be steadfast in their beliefs, to stand firm. They both have an inner strength that's very hard to find these days. So it can't be anything about gender. You could depend on either one of them when push comes to shove. A fighter once said that everyone thinks they're tough until they get punched in the face. Then all of a sudden it becomes real. In this sermon, I hope to challenge you to examine yourselves to determine if you're spiritually as tough as you think you are and to do whatever it takes to improve your faith, which gives us the inner strength and the toughness that we need when push comes to shove. I'll start at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So the first day of the Jewish month on their Jewish calendar is Nisan. And um, the Passover was celebrated in that month, and it's, kind of, it's really pretty much right now. On the Jewish calendar, right now really would be the month of Nisan. It's uh, pretty much part of March and part of April. So this would be going on right now. And the prediction that Jesus made was made two days before the Passover. The Passover was the first great feast on the Jewish calendar. And we all know that it commemorates uh, Israel's deliverance from Egypt and the uh, passing over of the firstborn child when God smote the Egyptians. Passover was followed for seven days with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the whole thing together was really considered to be Passover. So Passover was really a seven-day festival and feast. Now this is the fourth time 
that Jesus speaks of the betrayal of the Son of Man. Fourth time. But here he reveals that it will happen during Passover. Let's go on to verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So Caiaphas now had been in power for about 13 years. He was actually appointed by the Romans in A.D. 18. So he'd been high priest for some time. And it actually was his father-in-law who was the high priest prior to that. You know, it's kind of like King Herod. King Herod was also appointed by the Romans. And if you're appointed by the Romans, that's who your loyalty lies with. Herod, of course, was not in the line of kings, but he was appointed. Now, Caiaphas had previously called for Jesus' death. Caiaphas was uh, wanting to get rid of Jesus like uh, most of the church or, let's say, synagogue or temple leadership was that day, in that day. But their first impulse was to arrest him secretly, snag him somewhere where nobody would notice, and kill him. Sounds like the right thing for a church to be doing, doesn't it? But that's what their plan was. But they were afraid that, they may resi- that people may find out what they were doing, especially since there were a lot of Galilean supporters in the crowd who supported Jesus. They were worried if they grabbed him and somebody found out there might be a riot, there might be trouble, it might be obvious, and they didn't want that. So they were probably waiting a week because then Passover would be done, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover feast, everything would be completed, and then they could do it when not so many people were in town. They might have more success. But Jesus had fixed the time of his death so that he would die at the appointed time as the true Passover. The following verses, uh, verses 6 through 13, are likely an earlier event that happened um, to explain Judas's betrayal and why he did what he did. Verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, now you may wonder why he's with a leper, but uh, this undoubtedly was somebody that Jesus had healed who was, uh, had a lot of gratitude about the healing that Jesus did. In verse 7. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. So this would have been Mary, um, whose uh, sister was Martha and brother was Lazarus. And uh, this ointment is described in the book of John as uh, to be valued at 300 denarii, which in today's money would be about $35,000. Can you imagine that? $35,000. And then we go on to verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why the waste? Now, if I'm honest, I would have to say, I probably would have said the same thing. My goodness, 35000 you're just pouring that out? A lot, of, a lot of good could be done with that money. And all the disciples did the same thing. It's easy in hindsight to think that we might not have. We might have understood what was actually happening. After all, we should make wise decisions about the finances of the church, right? Then we go to verse 9. For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Makes sense. The book of John suggests that it was Judas who instigated this difference of opinion. It doesn't seem to be a bad argument, really. Makes sense to us, I think. But then let's go on to verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. 
In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So the disciples didn't get it, but Mary did. Interesting. Who would you have thought would have gotten that? You would have said one of the disciples surely would have understood what was going on, but it was actually Mary who understood. Now, this is not to say that benevolent deeds are not a good thing to do, not at all. However, the Messiah was there with them at this unique time, and that time was coming to an end. This was their last opportunity to bless him in such a way, and the considerable cost of the perfume was far too small a gift for our Lord. The disciples didn't seem to accept that their Lord was about to be put to death, but Mary understood it. She anointed him, which was the custom before burial. Later, after the crucifixion and the burial, the women came to anoint him, but the tomb was empty. So it's a good thing that Mary did anoint him at the proper time. What she did was right. Then verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Now, people always wonder, what's Iscariot? Is that his last name, or what is that supposed to be about? But it was a town in Judea, Kiriath, uh, that was you know, kind of like Jesus of Nazareth. It was that sort of thing. That's why he was called Judas Iscariot. And then verse 15. And he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, some people think that Judas was so indignant about the quote-unquote waste of that $35,000 perfume, and that that's why the way, one of the reasons that he did what he did. But there's another possibility that probably goes into the equation, too. Uh, Jesus was starting to talk about a spiritual kingdom. Judas didn't want a spiritual kingdom. He wanted a kingdom on earth that he could be part of. Like a lot of people in that day, a lot of people, when they were looking forward to the Messiah, they were thinking that the Messiah was going to come as a political king, a king who would literally kick the Romans out of their land. And I'm sure Judas wanted the same thing. In fact, Judas undoubtedly thought, well, I'm with the Twelve. I'll be kind of have some good status in this new kingdom. And now Jesus is talking about a spiritual kingdom? And Mary's wasting money? I think that kind of pushed him over the edge. Now remember, the chief priests had planned to wait a week before they did this. But all of a sudden, this opportunity came up, and they were ready to pounce. But we always have to remember that they kind of fell into God's plan. God had his timing down. Jesus had to die at the appointed time, and this escorted them into that time. Now, ironically, 30 pieces of silver was the cost of a slave in those days. So Jesus was bought at the cost of a slave. Verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now there is some difficulty between the synoptic gospels and the book of John as to whether or not the Last Supper was actually the Jewish Passover meal or an anticipatory Passover meal or a Qumran sect Passover meal, since the Qumran sect had the meal on Tuesday earlier than everybody else. We're not going to spend a lot of time on those arguments here because I hear that there's a pastor who's preaching on the book of John, and I think he's going to cover this. 
So I'll leave that up to him. I'm sure he can do a better job than I could anyway. Then verse 18. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So this, of course, would have been the Last Supper that we all know of. Um, As he says in Luke, though, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, I will not have this supper with you again. So we know that it was the Last Supper. Then we go on to verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So later that evening, they gathered for this supper. This is the first time that Jesus reveals that one of the twelve will betray him. So think about what these disciples are receiving lately. They're told that Jesus' life will be taken during the Passover, which was that week that they're in or near. And now he's telling them that one of you will betray me. That's a lot. You wonder how much of it they heard. It must have been a shock must have been an emotional overload, probably something beyond belief. How many of them really grasped it? They must have looked around the room trying to decide who would it be? Who could it be? Why would any of us do that? And then verse 22. And, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to one another, or one after the other, Is it I, Lord? They seem to recognize their own weakness here, if you look at it. They're actually asking him, Is it me? Now, you may think that's ridiculous for them to ask that question, but think about what's going on. There's a whole lot of people that want to kill Jesus. There's a whole lot of people that have been trying to trap him, and they're his disciples. They're facing the possibility of death or imprisonment or persecution. They're they're wondering, I'm sure, am I strong enough to stand firm when push comes to shove? Will I crack? There are those who say everybody has a point where they'll give it up. They didn't even know where that point was with them. I'm sure they had some very serious concerns. They were even questioning their own ability to withstand. And then verse 23. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. So it was a common practice, of course, for them. They reclined at the table. They had a big bowl. Everybody ate out of the same bowl. It wasn't anything unusual. But the answer that Jesus gave them was not definitive. He didn't answer their question directly and definitely. Then verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Old Testament prophecies predicted what was happening and what was about to happen. It's God who ordains what happens. God is sovereign, and aside from his will, nothing will happen. God's sovereignty, however, does not relieve a man of his responsibility or guilt. In other words, if God sovereignly has something happen, like you remember the story back in Egypt with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not guiltless, although God hardened his heart. Same thing here with Judas. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So it appears that Judas finally has guts enough to ask the question. He may have been afraid to ask because he might have been exposed. Everybody else might have jumped on him. 
He may have wondered if Jesus actually knew who it was or if he just knew that somebody would. A lot of questions going on in his mind. It isn't clear as to whether or not the others heard this dialogue, but one thing is clear. Judas got his answer. Jesus knew who he was and what he would do. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Now this is language that we're familiar with. When we share in the Lord's Supper, these are some of the words that we hear. This is the first Lord's Supper, if you want to look at it that way. Now, there are those who believe that the bread uh, that we take and with the Lord's Supper actually becomes the body of Christ. I don't know if you've heard that or not, but there are those who say that the, when the bread is blessed, it becomes the body of Christ. But Jesus' physical body was present when he established this sacrament. If it was symbolic then, it's symbolic now. So that eliminates that question. We are to remember that Jesus gave himself, sacrificed his body for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, for our salvation. And we, of course, should look forward to his coming again, because he will be coming back. Verse 27. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant was established when Jesus went to the cross, when he died on the cross. He shed his blood to establish the new covenant. The old covenant required continual sacrifice. They continually were sacrificing. It never ended. But the new covenant was established by one final sacrifice, the sacrifice of a perfect man once and for all. No more sacrifices would ever be required. Notice Jesus' sacrifice was for many. Many would be saved by it, but many would not. That's kind of a sobering truth. And if there's anyone here who wonders if you're saved, if you want assurance of faith, there's only a few things you have to know. Really, I've said a million times, this actually is the gospel, the whole thing. There's a redemptive thread that goes all the way from Genesis through Revelation. But the gospel that you need to know and understand is really very simple. You have to realize that there is only one God. God the Father Almighty who created the heavens and the earth and who created us. God is sovereign. He's loving and he's just. When God created mankind, when he created Adam, Adam was sinless. The earth was not cursed. Adam decided to sin against God. And because he sinned against God, Adam had to pay a terrible price. But not just Adam, because Adam represented mankind. Mankind sinned against God when Adam sinned against God. So all of us have what we call original sin. You're born with original sin. And the requirement that God has really is one of two things. You either pay for sin yourself, which means if you sin against an infinite God, you have to pay an infinite price, and that infinite price is eternal separation from God in hell, which is not a pleasant place, or it has to be paid for by a perfect man. The life and blood of a perfect man is acceptable to God. The problem we had is there was no perfect man and never would be perfect because of original sin. Everyone sins. If Jesus hadn't come into the world and become man, 100% God, 100% man, we would have no chance of being saved except for paying for that sin in hell forever. But Jesus was obedient to God. 
God put him here for a purpose. He lived 33 years on this earth, never sinned once, and went to the cross willingly and died. He bled and died on the cross. He gave his body and blood to pay God for the sins of mankind for anyone who would accept it. Anyone. That's how simple it is. Jesus himself said, believe this gospel, this small part of the gospel. Believe it and truly repent. And repentance is something that a lot of people miss. They think repentance is something you do once and you're done. Or repentance is, gee, I'm sorry, God. If you ever want to know where repentance is, read, read uh, uh, about what Paul felt about repentance. He goes on about what a wretched man I am. He basically saying, I can't stand the thought that I'm stuck in this physical body that continually sins against God. I want to be like God. I want to submit myself to the Spirit, but I find myself sinning all the time. What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? That's repentance. That's how we have to repent. And repentance is not just a thing that we do once. It's a life. We repent daily, constantly, and let God know that we're still heading to him. Even though we seem to be entangled by sin, we're going to turn away from it as quickly as we can and, and, and ask God for his forgiveness in Jesus' name and make a commitment not to do that sin again. We need God to help us to be able to do that, so we have to con- continuously pray. Then verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom so now jesus directs their attention to a better time a time of joy and fellowship to come the great marriage supper sometimes uh, we forget that the difficulty that we have in this life is not forever it's just like uh, i think in the book of james he describes it as a plume of mist it's there and it's gone we only have a short time here and then we're done And one day, we'll be in a place where there is no sin, there are no tears, and we can be happy for eternity if we come to God, if we believe the gospel and repent. Verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you think about it, the Last Supper was really a worship service. The scripture was spoken and proclaimed, prayer was offered, the first Lord's Supper happened, And at least one hymn was sung. Do you know that we have a pretty good idea what that hymn was? Psalm 115 through 118. Because during Passover, that was the traditional hymn that was sung. So if you ever want to read the words of the hymn that they sung here, you have it. It's in your Bible. Then verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So this prophecy is from Zechariah 13.7, and of course it actually came true. All 11 forsook him and left. Verse 32, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This is the great post-resurrection meeting that's mentioned several times. If you read the, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, you'll, you'll see that Jesus told them a number of times, after I'm resurrected, I will meet you in Galilee. But this does not preclude other appearances, because there were other appearances, actually, in Judea earlier. Verse 33, Peter answered him, though they will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, there's no doubt in my mind 
that Peter truly believed exactly what he was saying. You would never be able to convince him otherwise. He said, I'll die with you if I have to. I know he meant it. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now on one hand, you would think that Peter would be badly hurt with Jesus saying this to him, or offended even, but I actually really believe that Peter didn't even hear it. It wasn't even something that he would entertain. Even though Jesus said it, I don't think he really heard it. If he heard it, he obviously didn't believe it. Then verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. I almost picture Peter, if you know Peter, probably was standing up front and all the disciples were huddled behind him. And they're all saying, yeah, us too. Really wondering if they could even do it. So even the others chimed in with Peter reflecting confidence in themselves. When push came to shove, scripture tells us in Matthew 26, verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. Very shortly after this, they all bailed out. And as far as Peter goes, the leader of the pack, Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75, tells us a story. We're probably all familiar with this, but listen. Now, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know the man. What do you mean? And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This passage of scripture has to prompt us to be introspective. We have to look at ourselves a little more deeply. How strong is our faith really? I know there have been times in my life where I thought I was solid. And God in various ways showed me. I have no strength of my own. I have no strength at all. My strength is only by holding on to the hand of God. But how would you really react when push came to shove? And once again, I'm talking about something that's terrifying. You know, in this nation, we kind of have felt pretty secure that we'll never face the persecution that the disciples faced. But it's happened before. And it looks like it's starting to happen again. Would you stand strong when you're facing the kind of things that the disciples were facing? Maybe somebody putting a hold on your bank account so that you have no money. Who knows, even your life might be threatened. Whatever it is, where would you draw the line when push comes to shove? Would you stand firm? Would you be willing to die? Would you be willing to give up everything? That's what they were going through. And we have to ask ourselves, where are we in our faith? What we're really talking about is, are we able to act in faith when it's tough? It's easy when things are easy, but not when it's tough. And before we say yes, as I hope I could say, but I don't know sometimes, we have to look at the examples we have here. Verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. 
we have to remember that the disciples spent years with Jesus himself. You would think that if anybody could stand strong, it would be them. How do we compare to that? All 12 failed in the heat of the moment. If you were in their shoes facing death, would we have done any better? Maybe not. Maybe we're not as strong as we think we are. What's interesting and often missed is verse 7. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Mary acted in faith under tremendous pressure. Can you imagine her being moved to anoint Jesus, to prepare him for burial, with that $35,000 container of ointment, with all 11 guys in the room who she knew was going to oppose her? She did it anyway. And what she did was right. She had her faith demonstrated by her actions. How many of us have a difficult time even with a tithe, let alone a very generous offering? Of course, the most powerful act of faith we see here is in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. Think about Jesus for a minute right in this moment. Jesus was about to be beaten pretty much to death, brought to the cross, mocked, nailed to the cross until he died. You want to talk about tremendous pressure? That's tremendous pressure. We know that it was tremendous pressure because of the prayer, his prayer to God in Matthew 26, verses 38 through 39. This is the prayer. Then he, or, well, this is, uh, well, no, let me back up. This is what uh, um, Jesus prayed. He said, if you remember uh, to God, if there's any other way, let it be done, but your will be done. In other words, Jesus was feeling the, the heat of the moment. He was feeling the stress that he was going through. And he wanted another way if it was possible. But what was important to him was that he follow the will of God. And that prayer was not granted. He had to do what God gave him to do. And then verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but as you will. When push came to shove, Jesus went through with it. He wasn't going to stop. There was, there was literally nothing that would stop him from doing God's will. Not a beating that would almost kill him. Not mankind mocking him, spitting on him. Not being nailed to a cross and being in excruciating pain until he was dead. Not even the thought that God would forsake him. If you ask me... The the toughest thing that Jesus went through was not the torture. It was the thought that God would forsake him when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's things that we need to do in order to prepare ourselves to stand strong. These are things that we have to do and we have to do now. We have to prepare because in the moment of trial, we'll fail if we're not prepared and if we're not determined. I'll offer you three things that you can do. Number one, make a conscious and intentional commitment. I like Joshua. This is what Joshua had to say. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers 
that your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There was no question about who Joshua was going to serve, him and his house. We have to make that determination that in our house, it'll be a sanctuary. We'll read God's word together as families. We'll pray together as families. We'll discuss God's word together as families. And we'll encourage each other to go out and represent that to the dark world that's around us. But we have to make that commitment. We have to actually do it and not just talk about it. Make a commitment to who you will serve. Will you serve the world or will you serve God? The second thing is prayer. A couple of good verses about prayer. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And then James 1, verse 6. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So we have to pray. We have to pray in faith. Scripture tells us you don't have because you don't ask. There's so much that we can have if we ask. But when we ask, we have to ask in faith. The Bible also teaches us that we should be in prayer constantly. I kind of liken it to walking down the street with my Lord in my life because he's always with me. If I want to talk or have something to say, I do. So I'm in prayer constantly. But you have to have a time of prayer when you go into your closet, as Scripture says, close the door without distractions and have that time of intense prayer with God. So be in prayer. Improve your prayer life. And thirdly, the transformation of our minds and heart. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is his good, perfect, and acceptable will. How do you have your minds transformed? We have our minds transformed because we quit putting garbage into our heads. The TV is full of garbage. The Internet is full of garbage. Some of the things people we hang out with is garbage. We have to quit putting garbage into our heads and start putting God's word into our heads. The more of God's word you have in your head, the more likely your heart is going to change. You'll be transformed. It's called sanctification. You'll become more like our Lord. You'll become far stronger. Make a commitment to prayer and the transformation of your minds so that you're able to stand strong. When push comes to shove. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, 